0: good to be here. I, you know, I, that, uh, that blackout that we had last week, I don't know about you, but when I'm fasting, sometimes I get a little bit sleepy, and I was thinking, where's a good storm when you need it? You know, we could have had a, a blackout today. It would have been much, much better timing. That way you could have, without anybody knowing, you could have taken a short nap. But uh, since I can see you, uh, and don't snore too loud either, so... Well, you know, we all have a problem, don't we? And I'm not talking uh, about being hungry or thirsty. We have another problem, and that is the problem of sin. In Romans, the third chapter, in verse 23, it tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I think most of us understand that. I was always a bit incensed when there were individuals that said that, well, we teach salvation by works, or we never knew Jesus Christ. And i that was not the message that I got in the Church of God. I understood that uh, uh, we have a problem of sin, and that we are not perfect right now. We are not fully you know, cleansed of ourselves, that we need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cleanse us of our sins. In Romans the 7th chapter, the Apostle Paul, I'll just turn over there, Romans 7 and verse 18, tells us that he had a problem with sin. He knew that he hadn't been perfected yet. He says, For I know that in me, that's Romans seven 18, that in me, that is in my flesh, in the physical flesh that we have, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And then a little later there, in verse 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives the answer in the next verse, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have a problem of sin, the apostle Paul did. And for all of us, in 1 John, the 8th chapter, 1 John, I'm sorry, 1 John, the 1st chapter, verse 8, 1 John 1, and verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so on this day of atonement, I hope that we are confessing our sins, that we are going before God not puffed up, but humbled by the fact that we are physical flesh, that we're going to live only a certain period of time on this earth, and then we're going to die. And if it weren't for the sacrifice of Christ... And his life in us and his resurrecting us at the end, we would all be dead for eternity. Sin is no small thing. It has consequences. In Romans the sixth chapter in verse 23, it tells us that the penalty of sin is death. There's a penalty. The wages that we receive uh, from sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And this day deals with the subject of sin and death. It explains how our sins can be forgiven and how God is going to reconcile all mankind to Himself so that we can ultimately be at one with Him. And atonement, atonement really is the English meaning of at one, at one meant, to be at one with God. It's a day that addresses the source of sin. And how God is going to remove that ultimate source from influencing mankind. The Day of Atonement is interesting in that it has one complete Old Testament chapter devoted to it. And in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, a number of chapters really address this very day. Now they go beyond this day in talking about the sacrificial system. But this day is directly addressed in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is very much about the high priest, a high priest, and what he does for us. In fact, over half the book is addressing, uh, the book of Hebrews, is addressing Jesus Christ as our high priest. Let's notice that in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 4. And verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be, could not sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus Christ is our high priest, as it tells us here in the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Now, it's all the way through here, but let's notice the sixth chapter, verses 19 and 20, says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Now, what does it mean there? Enters the presence behind the veil. We will see that that has everything to do with this day. It says, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we could read various other scriptures that show that Jesus Christ is a high priest. But you know, if we didn't have the Old Testament, we really wouldn't know much about what a high priest does. And so it behooves us to go back to the book of Leviticus, the 16th chapter, which is the chapter that talks about this very day, the Day of Atonement, and come to understand what the role was of the high priest. Uh, We we can throw all the Old Testament out, but how could we understand the book of Hebrews if we didn't have that background? So let's go to Leviticus, the 16th chapter. And I'd like to simplify this for us a little bit, because I can remember hearing sermons on the subject and even reading and giving sermons. And it seems like every time you turn around in this chapter, they're killing an animal. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. But it's not as though they're killing a whole herd of animals. They're killing five, actually four. They only kill four animals and let another one free. There are only five animals that we have to be concerned about. I gave a sermon uh, up in Canada, where actually had cutouts of the sermon of the uh, the not the sermon cutouts of the animals, so that people could see. We have a bullock, a young bull. We have uh, two goats and we have two rams. That's all, just five animals there. And when we read the chapter of Leviticus, it, it gives us a little bit of detail. Then it gives us goes back and kind of rehearses that and gives us a little more detail, and then it gives us the whole thing all together. So let's just notice, when we look at this, how it is organized, it was after the death of Aaron's two sons for offering profane fire and the altar. And uh, it says here, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Eternal and died. And the Eternal said to Moses, verse 2, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So we find that it tells us he's not to come any time, but only on a certain occasion. And we find that it's only once a year. Now, sometimes people wonder, well, would they move this? This ark, and they moved the tabernacle. Uh, and, and so how did that work? Well, it's talking about coming in there to do service uh, toward God. They obviously had to take it down, move it, set it back up. But once it was set up, he only went in once a year. Now, it would help us to understand a little bit about this whole tabernacle structure. And so I'd like you to put your mind in gear right now, And to picture in your mind, if you've never seen a picture of this, you might have one in the back of your your Bible, but there's a, a structure, a rectangular structure. It's an area that is curtained off, curtained off because there's no roof to it. It's just a rectangular structure. And at one end, the east end, there's an opening that they could walk through, and the first thing that they would come to would be an altar for burning sacrifices. And on the horns of the altar, or the four corners of the altar, there were horns, as it were, that were used to tie down the, uh, the dead sacrifices on top of the, the fire so that it didn't uh, fall all the way through. But the horns were used in keeping the various things in place. And then you went a little further toward the west as you're moving west through this rectangular structure, and you came to what was called a laver. It was a place that they could wash, where the priests could wash and and do various uh, washings there. Uh, It was a structure that had held a lot of water, and we don't know exactly today uh, what it was like, but it was a place of washing. And then you go a little bit further, and you came to a tent structure, a structure with a roof over it, but made of boards and Uh, skins and uh, woven cloth and so forth. And this was called the tabernacle or the tabernacle of meeting, as we'll see here, uh, where they met with God, as it were. And uh, we find that it was divided into two parts. The first two thirds was a holy place. And then there was a curtain or a veil that blocked the area to the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. In the first area, that two-thirds, you had the table of showbread, where every Sabbath they changed the showbread out. You had a an altar for burning incense, and then you also had the candelabra there uh, that, that is very typical, the seven candles that we see, the menorahs, sometimes it's called. Uh, but that was also in that area. But beyond that veil... They were only to go once a year. They went in all the time to take care of the, the candles, to trim them in the morning and the evening. Uh, they went in to replace the showbread. They burned uh, incense in the morning and the evening. But into that area where the ark was, they only went once a year. And it was really only one person that went, just one single individual, the high priest. Now, as we read through here in Leviticus 16, uh, in verse 4, it says, He shall put the holy linen tunic on and the linen trousers on his body. Uh, He shall be girded with linen sash, and with linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. So, we find that these were special garments, They were less ornate than the typical garments that he wore. And he was to wear these special garments whenever he went into the Holy of Holies. It says in verse uh, 5, He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull. Okay, let me stop right there because This is just giving an overview that he was to take a a bull, in verse 3, and then he was to take these uh, two goats from the people as a sin offering, and he was to wear these special clothes when he went in. And he was to take one ram from the the children of Israel, and he had his ram as well, verse 3. So you have the two rams, the two goats, and the one bullock. Now, verse 6 begins giving us a little bit more detail. We now know the animals that are involved. We know how he's supposed to go in. We have the the general uh, view of things. But in verse 6, it begins a little bit uh, of a a more detailed account specifically of the two goats, what was to be done with them. And so in verse 6, it says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and present them before the eternal at the door of the of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So just outside this this uh, this tabernacle at the door of it, he was to take the two goats and present them before God. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat, as it's called here or in the original the Azazel. Now, scapegoat is simply a word that is a shortened form of escape because it was a goat that was going to be allowed to escape into the wilderness. And it's interesting that the the name scapegoat comes down to a very different meaning today than was intended here. Uh, originally, it was azazel, and there is some uh, there's one theory that says that it, it comes from the word to to let free. Uh, uh, the, the first part, Oswald. And then others say that it's a, a place, a cliff that they threw something over, and there are all kinds of different ideas about what this original word meant. But the English was translated "scapegoat" originally, and then it got shortened to scapegoat, and it has taken on the meaning that a scapegoat is one that is blamed for someone else's sin, or someone that is the fall guy. And I think that that's interesting because when we really understand what this goat represents, you can understand why the one that he represents would want us to misunderstand this word. You know, Satan is a, a great uh, uh, one to confuse people. And the scripture tells us that we're living in a time or we would come to a time and actually we're living there when we would call good evil and evil good. And I remember as a high school uh, student, uh, one of my friends uh, was one of the first to figure this out, uh, one of the new terms. You know, there's always something new with high schoolers that they're coming up with. And so when you wanted to say something that was really cool, something neat, they'd say, it's bad. That's really bad. Now, that's kind of mild in a sense. Uh, it, It might be a more joking way of saying something. But isn't it interesting how Satan always turns everything upside down so that if something is good, you use the word bad. And if that's as far as it went, I suppose it would be okay. But we are at the place in our society today where those who tell the truth, those who do what is right, are persecuted. It's interesting how here in North Carolina, as uh, Mr. DeMont was talking about there, about these these bathrooms you go into the bathrooms we've got these they wanted the city council here as all of us are well aware wanted to make it so that anybody could choose whatever bathroom they want depending on how they feel today and so we have a governor who stands up against it and legislature that stands up against it and pass a bill and what happens everybody decides well we don't want to do business in north carolina anymore and then because of that, you've got a lot of people who cave. A lot of people who give in because, ooh, we're losing business. And so they intimidated other states. We're not the first one to be intimidated that way. And they've, you know, with the uh, uh, the Marriage Act and so forth, uh, men marrying men, we've seen other states. So as soon as that happens, everybody caves. Everybody gives in because there's a little bit of economic pressure. And so good is evil, and evil is good. It's turned upside down. And right here we find that the one that this scapegoat or this Azazel represents is the one that is the master of turning everything upside down, as we shall see. But as we go through here, he is to make atonement for himself by offering up this bull. Then he's to take these two goats. And there was a very uh, important ceremony that was to take place at this time. And he is to take these two goats that probably look pretty much alike, not one any better than the other, and it says he's to cast lots over them. One lot for the Lord, the other lot for the Azazel. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell that uh, to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the eternal to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, this is what the Scripture says is to be let go into the wilderness. And someplace along the line, the Jews turn it into throwing it over a cliff, not letting it loose. And I think that's rather interesting. And I think it's important that when we look at some of these traditions, you know, the... the uh, the, uh, the Temple Mount uh, group over there in Israel. I uh, have a, a beautiful book I was going through it a little bit last night, my wife as well, showing the temple and showing various things, but you realize that as much as they do know, and they, they do have a lot of information about maybe what the, uh, the Ark looked like and what some of the instruments were, and, and it really shows the, the absolute beauty of this tabernacle as well as the temple, when you look at the materials and how they were embroidered and so forth, it was not something dull and uninteresting, but nevertheless, uh, some of the things that they have are just simply wrong and to throw the goat over a cliff is not what the scripture says; he was to be let loose into the wilderness now, beginning in verse eleven we we kind of look at the whole thing again, but picking up more details so uh, and I forgot my, my Bible at the office, so I had to use this other one today, and I don't have it all marked out, but the, the first uh, five verses are one section. Uh, verses 6 through 10 is another section, you might say. Uh, verse 11 on, uh, you could even divide that a couple places, but it, it helps you to kind of get the big picture by getting each part of it and seeing that it, it tells us about the, the bull and the, the ram and the two goats and so forth, and the, the ram for the for the people, and then it goes back and explains what to do with them, and then it comes back and explains it again. So beginning in verse 11, we have the whole thing here. It says, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering. So this is not another one. This is the one that was mentioned earlier. He's to take the bull of the sin offering. It's going to tell us exactly what he's to do with it besides just kill it. He says, "...which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar..." That's the altar of burnt offerings. "...from before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the, the eternal..." That the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. Now we can go over to the book of Revelation and we can see that the, uh, the incense was offered up at the same time as the prayers of the saints and the, uh, the, actually in the eighth chapter of Revelation, uh, there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. And this was generally the time of the priest going in and offering the incense uh, in, in the morning and the evening, and the people would be outside praying. And so we know that the incense pictures the prayers of the saints. I was reading that uh, source last night, and it said that it was to keep people from looking in. Uh there was all that, uh, that incense. I guess it was a different source that was talking about that, that it would fill that up so that anybody looking from outside couldn't just see through the cracks or the, the curtain if it wasn't quite closed to see what was happening. Uh, the, the, the incense was a type of the, the prayers of God's people. He shall take a censer full of uh, burning coals of fire uh, from the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord or the eternal that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. So without the prayer's of God's people in a sense. Death would result. We, we can't go before God's throne just any way. When we go before God's throne. We go before him in prayer. It says he shall take some of the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So he was to sprinkle it on the, the ark itself. And then. On the mercy seat, uh, he was to sprinkle it seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. He goes back out. He kills the goat, which is for the people. Bring his blood inside the veil. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So obviously there were other individuals who were involved in holding the animals outside, uh, helping him as far as uh, the... Uh, you know, holding while he laid his hands on them, while he slew the animals, uh, keeping them ready for him. But as far as going into the tabernacle, it was only the high priest, just this one individual. And while they knew what he was to do, they could not observe it. It was taking place behind the veil. Verse 16, so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of the transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. It was as though their uncleanness, their sins were transferred over to the tabernacle. At least it was affected by their sins, just their being there. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement to the holy place. So that whole tabernacle, even the part that was outside of the veil, was to be empty when he was to go in to the holy of holies. It says, until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out, verse 18, to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. That altar that they sacrifice the animals on. It says, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. So all four horns he would put that on. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So this is the detail of of what he was to do with the bullock and with the goat that was offered as a sin offering for himself, for his family, and for the people. Verse 20, When he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, uh, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man now it's interesting that this goat as we I think most of us understand and as we'll see a little bit uh, later from uh, other scriptures this goat was to represent Satan and Anyone who has children, especially if you have two boys or more, uh, know that the older one oftentimes puts the younger one up to no good. I, I remember a, a story. Actually, I can remember, actually, these are two true stories. I, I, I know the people involved, and uh, the one actually gave a sermonette on this subject, and the other one just was out of the fishing camp and cracked us up, but... Uh, there, there's a certain kind of tree. I don't know what it is, but it, it's up north in Michigan and Wisconsin and that area. So you maybe get a little bit of an idea of the characters involved here. Uh, but there's a certain type of a tree that when you – it has a lot of spring to it. And so a lot of young people like to have somebody shimmy up the tree and, and tie a rope to it, and they pull it over and tie it off, and then somebody hangs on and they cut it loose. And usually it's the, the younger brother. In both cases it was the younger brother. Actually in one case they, they pulled one of these trees over and, and, uh, they, they tied it off and, and, and so the big brother got on it and they cut it loose and nothing happened. He was a little bit overweight and nothing happened. So they decided to get, uh, their, their father's Sudebaker. Uh, that's a car for those of you who are younger. Uh, it's been out of business a long time and they they, they got it, I guess it was just on the edge of the woods there and they they got a bigger one of these trees and they they pulled it over and they brought it down to where it was, to the ground as it were and tied it off to the uh, bumper and uh, then they had the younger brother grab hold and they said, now hold tight. (laughs) And uh, at any rate, uh, The the first story, because I'm I'm comparing two of them here, but the first one, uh, he's, the fellow who gave the sermonette said that this is when he learned what it meant to hold tight, because when they cut loose, the tree launches. And as he said, he learned what it meant to hold tight. And he was using that as, you know, a scripture in, in Hebrews. But this other fellow was, uh, jumped aboard this tree that had been pulled over by the uh, the Studebaker, and when they cut loose, he just went flying through the treetops. And all he could hear was somebody down below saying, man, I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> and somehow he survived it. But the point I'm trying to make here is that it's often the older brother that gets the younger brother in trouble and puts him up to something and that, that's the way it is, you know, they, with older brothers. Well, Satan the devil is not our brother, but he's able to put us up to no good. When you look at the apostles, James and John and Peter, all three of them, at one time or another, Christ had to rebuke them and say that, you know, you're, you're a wrong spirit. You know, get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. And James and John, he said, you don't know what spirit you are of. And in both cases, they thought they were saying something that was right. It is so easy for us to think that we're right when we're so wrong. One of the things that we're running into this year, which I think that we need to, as individuals, be very, very careful of and repent of if we take part in it, but It's so easy to get caught up in politics, isn't it? To take sides. Of course, this year, nobody knows which side to take. But generally speaking, there is one political party in this country that's always on the wrong side of every moral issue. And the other side, at least, appears to be on the right side, although... That's very questionable because they use a cave. But we need to recognize that democracy is not God's way, and this year is a perfect example of why it's not God's way. If we haven't seen enough of it yet, I don't know about you, but I, I just have to turn it off. I can't listen to it anymore. And um uh, it's just so disgusting. There are so many ways that you and I get caught up in this world. And Satan is there to encourage us. He wants us to take revenge. Have you ever watched movies where you have the good guy and the bad guy, but before it's over, when they finally kill the bad guy, you're you're almost cheering, almost sometimes you are cheering for? Because they they motivate you that way. I remember seeing uh, the movie about uh, the... Uh, the uh, Jamaican bobsled uh, cool runnings i think it was and my uh, relative one of my relatives uh, besides my wife went to it and she knows that i'm pretty critical of movies and she said well what was wrong with that movie and i said well the one thing that was wrong with it was the the young man you know told off his father and she said well that's because he's a jerk And I said, that's because Hollywood wrote him in to be a jerk. But those things influence our thinking, whether we realize it or not. And we need to to look at things in a critical way because there's so much we have to repent of. How is it that Lot could do the things he did after he was saved from Sodom? It was the world in which he lived. And yet God says that he was righteous, Lot. He was influenced by the world in which he lived. We're all influenced by this world. And Satan is the one that is directing the course of this world. Let's just notice that over in Revelation, the 12th chapter. Revelation 12, I mean, we've we've got this memorized, don't we? Verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. He deceives the whole world, and a deceived man does not know he's deceived. And just because we are members of God's church doesn't mean that we can't be deceived. In fact, we are probably all deceived in one way or another, probably in many ways. It's a battle that we must fight, and it's not easy. Ephesians, the second chapter, another memorization scripture. Ephesians 2. In verse 1 he says, You He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, the direction of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, I I think we ought to be able to say that we've grown a little bit. We've grown, haven't we? I I can remember a number of years ago when wrong thoughts would come into my mind, and I'd dwell on them. Or the violence or other, whatever it might be. Daydreaming. Boys like to daydream. You know, the suffering hero type. They, they actually have names for all these dreams that people have. You know, the suffering hero, the, the, the fella he's going to rescue the fair damsel in distress. And, you know, he, he has to take on ten people and he whips them all. But he's there in the hospital with the young lady afterward. You know, silly dreams like, like that. Uh, they call them suffering hero dreams. And it's daydreams, stuff you make up. And, and you know, I, I i was a young fellow. I used to think of those things. And I realized that, you know, this is vanity. This is not what we ought to be doing. It, it's, it's just vanity. It's, it's allowing thoughts to come into our mind and then we just go on with them. And over a period of time, you learn when you start down a path, you cry out to God, God you know uh, cleanse my mind. Give me a clean mind, heart, body, and soul. cleanse me of this. and you, you cry out to God instantly and you find that you're able to overcome those things over a period of time. When you use foul language, cry out to God. and most of us have overcome that, haven't we? If I asked for a showing of hands of how many people have sworn, when I mean swear, meaning use foul language, I, I'm, I, I could ask that, and it would be a, a 98.34%. Is that what it would be? It would be pretty high, wouldn't it? There are probably some people here who never have used foul language. Maybe some of our younger people. Maybe some that have grown up in the church. But I'd say that most of us have probably said things that we shouldn't say. But over a period of time, we stop that, don't we? We overcome it. And we know that we can overcome it. I've known people that when they're out fishing or when they're out on the golf course, they use a few words. But we know they can overcome it because they don't say those words when they're here, do they? When we walk into services, we change our language if we have to. Now, I think that most of us have come to the place where we've overcome that, haven't we? But these are some of the sins that have to be forgiven. This is why we have a high priest that must pay the penalty for our sins. Let's notice here uh, again, talking about Satan, 2 Corinthians 4, this Azazel goat. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3. says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Those that are in the process of perishing. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. He blinds our minds to the truth. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. This is why we cannot convert our neighbors If they open the door to wanting to know more, we can step in. Now, my wife was telling me that she was in the store the other day and there were a couple ladies talking and they were just all, you know, they just want to obey God. And one says, well, whatever God says, that's what I'm going to do. And I told her, I said, well, you should have said to her, she wasn't talking to her. It was a conversation between two other women. But I said to her, you should have said, oh, really? Well, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And that's the seventh day of the week. Are you going to do that? Of course, I knew she wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't do that, I don't think. Because that person's not being called. It would do no good. It would go right over their head because that person's mind, as far as we know, is blinded to the truth. And of course, to jump into somebody else's conversation would be rude and inappropriate. But if you did, probably nothing would happen. That person would get very upset, probably. Unless God... Turned a screw up there unless he called that individual. Because Satan is blinding the minds of people to the truth of God. Let's go back to Leviticus 16 once again. Leviticus 16. Let's finish out the story here. As uh, the, the reenactment here. And let's pick it up in verse 22. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Then verse 23, after that, Aaron was to then come back into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place. And shall leave them there. So in that area where the showbread was and where the altar of incense and the candle, uh, the menorah there, he was to undress there, take them off. He was to wash uh, his body with water in a holy place. Wherever that is, that doesn't really say unless that was a labor, but it's hard to say. Uh, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. So, he's offered the bull, he's offered the goat, he has let the goat go free, and then the two rams, one for himself and his family, and one for the people, then he offers as burnt offerings. Those are the last of the offerings there. And the fat of the sin offering, uh, he shall burn on the altar. So, some of the fat of the the, the goat and the, uh, the bull, he was also to offer that on the altar, they were still there. And then... Uh, He who released the goat as the scapegoat or the azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. So they were not offered on the altar. They were sacrificed. They were killed. The blood was captured. It was taken into the holy place or the most holy place. Now, after all this is done, then they take out the bull and the goat and they take them outside the camp where Christ was crucified, outside the camp, outside the the main city there. And they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. He shall be, this shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. That's today, the seventh month, the tenth day of the month. He says, uh, you shall afflict your souls. And we know that afflicting our souls is a reference to fasting. That is a well-known fact of uh, Jews and others as well. And all your Bible scholars, they understand that. Uh, we are to afflict our souls. In other words, we are to fast. We are to humble ourselves. We are to recognize our worthlessness, our weakness, of and by ourselves. There is nothing of value. We're just going to die someday and deteriorate to dust. Now, we, we do have worth if God is working with us. And even those individuals that God is not working with directly right now have worth in the sense that they are going to be worked with and God has a plan for them. But speaking of it, just humanly speaking of them by ourselves, if we think we're something, we're nothing. So he says that we are to afflict our souls. We are to come to a recognition of our weakness. And he says, it is a Sabbath, verse 31, of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It's a statute forever. Then the priest who anointed, who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, etc. there. So we, we see this acted out every year. It was an important ceremony. And it's something that most people read over and they, they just go through it. If, if you don't understand Day of Atonement, they just read over it and it's, you know, killing a lot of the animals and doing a lot of things and, and uh, they, they have no sense of it whatsoever. And yet God has opened our minds because God opened the mind of Mr. Herbert Armstrong and the church down through time to understand the significance of this. And I remember Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to go through the book of Hebrews, even on the radio program. He would uh, go through the whole book of Hebrews talking about uh, Christ as a high priest. And I confess, I didn't really get it all then. It was when I was still... Teenager or just after, I can't remember exactly what year it was that I heard that. I think even after he was in Tucson, he he went through it one time. But uh, it's a very important book, the book of Hebrews, because it does connect up here with this particular day. Let's notice, let's go to Hebrews the 8th chapter. Hebrews the 8th, and we will see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament here. He's talking about Jesus Christ as our high priest, and then he says in verse 1, Hebrews 8 verse 1, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord directed and not man. So this tabernacle that it references there is referencing back to this tabernacle that we just were reading about. And it says that there's a true tabernacle that's not erected by human beings, as it was in the days of Moses, but that was a type of something else. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one, this high priest, Jesus Christ, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. That tabernacle that was in the wilderness, and I suppose you could even say the, the temple, the way it was structured after the, the tabernacle in, in so many ways, uh, you know, that was a type of something else. It was a shadow of something that is far greater it foreshadowed something. It says we serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, this was the instruction for him: see that you make all things according to the pattern shown on the mountain. So Moses didn't just go out there and say, well, you know, we need a place to worship, and we ought, well, we ought to have an altar, we ought to do this, put a few candles in there, maybe put a little bit of bread. Oh yeah, we got this ark thing, so we ought to put it behind this veil and and come up it, it wasn't something that was designed by man. It was all done according to the instructions of God, of the one who became Jesus Christ, who talked with Moses on the mount and gave him these instructions. And when he was giving him these instructions, must have known of the future, of what it portrayed, of his future. Of what he was to do. Let's go over to the ninth chapter. You could read all through here. It says. Then indeed. Even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service. And the earthly sanctuary. This physical sanctuary that we've been talking about here. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand. The table and the showbread. Which is called the sanctuary. That's that first That two-thirds of that tent structure, not the not the curtain-off area, but that tent within it. The first two-thirds of it had the um, the showbread and the lamps and the table and so forth. Then, verse three, and behind the second veil, behind you had to go through a veil to get into it. And then there was a second veil. It says, behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or sometimes we call it the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna. Remember, they had a golden pot and they put manna in it and put that in this ark, this box structure. And also Aaron's rod that budded, which showed the... um, uh, the, the, the contest that was there between Aaron and the others that thought that they were to be priests. And Mr. Wallace Smith gave an excellent sermon on the Ark of the Covenant. If you haven't referenced that, go back to Mr. Smith's uh, sermon on that subject, talking about what was in the Ark and what the manna represented and what the rod represented and so forth, and that the tablets. And it uh, just goes through that in detail. And I encourage you, if you didn't hear that, to do so. And if you did, you may want to go back and review it. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, there are specific details that we do not have. We simply don't know every last detail of it. But we know the particulars. We know the important things. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. That's the first part with the showbread and so forth. Verse 7, But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which uh, he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. Now, notice it says once a year. So, what was that once a year? This day. The tenth day of the seventh month. So, here Paul, in writing this, is talking about what was going on on this day. He talks about the whole temple service. He talks about Christ as our high priest. But he referenced very clearly this specific day. He says, in the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, which the holiest of all, because that's where God appeared. That's where God communed with Moses. And that's where the high priest went to offer up the prayers of the saints and to offer up the the blood of these animals before God, it shows us that that way was not, was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, we did not have, or the people did not have access, only the high priest once a year, and he would do it on our behalf. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. It was done for a time to foreshadow a future event. Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So Christ came to a different temple, a different tabernacle, one in heaven above. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God? That's why all the sacrifices were to be without spot or blemish. All those that were burned in the fire there says, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions on the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, we might just stop here and hold our place here, but just go back to the eighth chapter that we skipped over, talking about the covenant. As I left off about verse 5 in chapter 8, but verse 6 shows that he came as a high priest to, uh, to bring in a new covenant. He says in verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6, now, "...but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises." And it's this is such an interesting thing how people can say that well we they, they accuse us of being an old covenant church and they are a new covenant church and what they mean by that is that we keep the Sabbath we keep the holy days including this one and we follow laws of uncle, clean and unclean meats but they just have they are under grace and they don't have to keep the Sabbath they can take a different day they can take different holy days. That come out of rank paganism. And they can eat whatever they want. and In other words they can do just about whatever they want to do. Because they're not under this old covenant. But notice that the new covenant is established on better promises. When we read here verse 7 it says. If the first covenant had been faultless. Then no place would have been sought for a second. So there was a fault with the first covenant. But what was the fault? Because finding fault with them. That is the people. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And another misunderstanding people have is that the new covenant is a Gentile covenant. It doesn't say that. What the Scriptures tell us is that the new covenant is going to be with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and we are to become spiritual Israelites, all of us. You can be a physical Israelite and be a spiritual Gentile. You can be a physical Gentile and be a spiritual Israelite. And we better hope for the latter to be a spiritual Israelite. He said, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the, in the day that I when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. Notice they did not continue in my covenant and I disregard them, says the eternal And then verse 10 tells us exactly what the new covenant is. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, the way that people read this, I guess, I don't know how else they could. Well, I've heard this before. Well, God just speaks to my heart. And whatever God says, that's what I know I should do. That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says I will put uh, my laws not my, me, not Gerald Weston, but God's laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So he first puts it in our mind and writes it in our hearts. So it isn't just about the heart, it's also about the mind. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And notice, says, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brothers, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is something yet future, the fulfilling of it. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Notice that that is a promise. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, under the old covenant, and under the administration of the, the priesthood of old, there wasn't real forgiveness of sins. I, I say there wasn't. It's it's one of those things that that there was and there wasn't. Uh, but as we'll see here, the blood of bulls and goats and calves and so forth cannot pay the penalty for our sins. It's impossible. Now David understood that God was not looking to uh, animals, uh, we can read that in Psalm 51, but he's looking for a broken and a contrite heart. But the sacrifice of Christ is necessary for all human beings that our sins can be fully atoned for. Back here in chapter 9, uh, verse 23, he says, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now Once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus Christ was the high priest, or is our high priest. He was also the one who offered up his blood. And so when he appeared before his Father in heaven uh, I I don't I'm just speculating here, but I don't think it was with his literal blood. I don't think he took that up to heaven. But it was symbolic that he shed his blood on this earth and he had to appear to be accepted before God on that wave sheaf offering as the wave sheaf offering that morning but he offered up his blood whether it was literally hemoglobin or whether it was in a figurative sense I mean he did shed his hemoglobin he did shed his blood on the ground but it was figuratively taking it before the Father. It was necessary the heavenly copies or the things in heaven should be purified with these. Verse 26, he would then would have had to suffer often, but he doesn't as the high priest does. Verse 27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. For those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. You know, some of these things have to be understood in a very symbolic sense. You, you think of the uh, the, uh, the doctrine of the transubstantiation where in Catholicism and I think in several other of the uh, more traditional religions, they think when they eat the bread and the wine uh, What we would call Passover, what they call something different, that the it literally translates into the literal blood and and body of Christ. Well, his blood was shed on the ground, but no doubt it was symbolic of what he did in the heavens. For the law, verse ten or chapter ten, verse one, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same "...sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have to cease to be offered, for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remember, a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said... Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. God is not pleased with animal sacrifices, although He, you know, he obviously gave those things. If they were done in the right attitude, the right spirit, there was a lesson that they could learn from it. It was foreshadowing a future event, and it was necessary, and it was important. But God did not take pleasure in that. Then He said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And in the volume of this book, all the prophecies of Christ. You could go back to the the very beginning of the serpent and crushing the, or biting the heel and having its head crushed. You could go back to uh, the, the sacrifice or attempted sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. That is about what this is about. All those sacrifices under Moses and Levitical priesthood, all of that was foreshadowing what was to come. The volume of a book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified, set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then verse 11 says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So it wasn't just the day of atonement that he's referring to here. That is definitely, as we saw, referred to, the once a year. But there were other sacrifices, the daily sacrifices, morning and evening. And he says that they can never take away sins. But this man, the high priest, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified or set apart. His offering one time is enough to sanctify you and me. Now, the book of Hebrews is very clear that we can't turn back into sin, as you read there in Verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So we, we shouldn't walk around fearful all the time. I think in the early years when I was in the church, I always wondered, well, if I make it, if I make it. We shouldn't have to think that way. Christ's sacrifice has paid the penalty. He is at the right hand of God, the Father. He is interceding for us. He is our advocate on our behalf. And as long as we are following uh, the example of Christ. As long as we are obeying as much as we are able to. As long as we are repenting when we do sin. Confessing our sins before God. Coming back time and again. Looking to God and trusting in the sacrifice of Christ. We should be the most confident people in the world. To know that we will live again. The eternal life is sure as long as we don't turn away. But can we turn away? Verse 26 makes it very clear. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews shows that that was the, the point of this man's sermonette about learning to hold fast. And, and, and when he got to the top, he said he learned something real quick there. When he grabbed a hold of that tree, he was right side up. But when he got to the top, he was upside down. And he was talking about holding fast. That's what Hebrews tells us time and again, hold fast. So we have to hold fast, but at the same time, we can be confident that our sins are forgiven. That we have an advocate, Jesus Christ in the heavens above. He is our high priest. As it says here in verse 11, Every priest stands ministering daily. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my laws in their hearts And in their minds I will write them, then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. How comforting Psalm 103 is when it says, As far as east is from west, east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. He remembers our sins no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So we are able to go in past that veil to the very throne of God. And we address God as our Father. We come to him in the name of our high priest, Jesus Christ. In other words, by his authority, Christ has given us the authority to go to the Father. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and a living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, going in through the veil, that is through his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Those are very encouraging words if we, if we understand them. Very encouraging words that we can come before him with full assurance of faith because of the sacrifice that was made there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And then he tells us in verse 25 not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But what we often skip over is verse 24 because sometimes people say that, well, why should I go you know, drive a half hour or an hour to meet with other people and just watch a DVD? Well, verse 24 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Part of the reason that we come to worship before God is certainly to worship and to praise God and to learn about God's way, but also to encourage one another. And the fellowship of the Sabbath is so important. And that's why we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And especially as we see the day approaching. You know, Satan is going to be removed. He is, as we've already seen, the one who stirs up sin within us. And the reason that we fast on this day is because that was really Satan's problem. He became vain in his thinking. We could read Isaiah 14, uh, Ezekiel 28, and we read how he got the big head and how he wanted to knock God off his throne. And so as a result of that, uh, God is going to remove him, but he's He's also going to, he also has us fast because that is the way that we defeat Satan. We draw close to God. We humble ourselves before God and he draws near to us and that's how we can overcome In Psalm 35, we have the explanation of afflicting our souls. Psalm 35 and verse 11. Well, I'll just get down to verse um, verse 13. Well, no, verse 11. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. That's an interesting thought right there as we move forward in this age. But as for me, he says, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. Or he afflicted his soul with fasting, as it's translated elsewhere or in other translations. And my prayer would return to my heart. So we afflict our souls with fasting. That's how we afflict ourselves. And we know that Satan was puffed up. And so over in the book of Revelation, the 20th chapter, we read in the, the course of things, and we read about Christ's return in earlier chapters as King of kings and Lord of lords. And then the very next thing that we read of here in chapter 20, verse 1, says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is a devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him, that what? That he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years are finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And we can read of that later on, and we'll be reading this chapter, no doubt, uh, during the, the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm sure that that will be covered there. But we see that he must be bound. And we could never have real at one with God with Satan running around stirring up strife. So let's summarize. Jesus Christ is the living high priest, our living high priest. His work was typed by the work of the high priest in ancient Israel at the service of the tabernacle. That tabernacle in the wilderness was a type of God's dwelling in heaven. And on this day each year, the high priest was to appear before the very throne of God, typed by the Ark of the Covenant. The blood that he brought into the Holy of Holies was a type of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that would pay for our sins. Now we know that there's a spirit in this world... An evil spirit who stirs up strife and sin. We call him Satan the devil. He must be removed from influencing mankind. He was typed by the Azazel goat. The sins of the people were confessed over him because he is the one that stirred up those sins. And he was then removed into the wilderness, let go free. But he must be removed from influencing mankind if we are ever to be truly at one with God. We can never be at one with Him still around. We fast on this day to humble ourselves, to overcome the problem of pride and vanity. Those are the things that destroyed Lucifer. And they turned him from Lucifer, light bringer, into Satan, the devil. So while we go without physical sustenance today... While we may go physically hungry, we must understand that this is a spiritual feast with wonderful knowledge of God's plan and how he's working out here below. So enjoy the rest of the day. Uh, I'm sure many of you are looking forward to an, an evening meal, and we're looking forward to the Feast of Tabernacles. But isn't it interesting that God wants us to humble ourselves and go without a little bit before we go? into the wonderful Feast of Tabernacles.